podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Harry Reeder on the importance of personal holiness for those in ministry. Dr. Reeder is senior pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Reeder shares about the importance of pursuing holiness for effective ministry. It's great to be with you. If you've got your copies of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I realize such a subject before us, I could easily be instructed, physician, heal thyself. Uh, The pastor and the the pursuit of holiness in his own life and um, in terms of ministry. And um, everything I am, this is one of my favorite statements. You probably may have heard it before. Everything I am about to tell you, I am somewhere between zero and 100% effective in my life. Somewhere zero to 100%. I'll let you put it on the scale there of where I am. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to thank Mel and uh, Rick and uh, the other brothers who simply, and I want to make this clear, I probably don't need to because we've been at this a couple of years. Um, This Gospel Reformation Network is really just a fraternal collegial relationship of pastors who love the historic and biblical reformed view of sanctification and desire to administer it with a, um, a full commitment to a an approach that is uh, honoring to the Lord and not, um, not self, uh, self-promoting uh, by any means uh, real, and is constantly realizing that the Bible may, takes great pains to warn that the, the multiple, the multiple uh, traps and both leading people in sanctification as well as the personal pursuit of sanctification. And uh, so we, um, we love our Reformed perspective rooted in union with Christ. We love to make clear the finished work of Christ at the cross and the unfinished work of Christ in you. The Order Salutis really looks at the work of the Holy Spirit from Christ because of what Christ has done. And that what he is doing in you. And that while the glorious truths of, of a regeneration and justification and adoption are rooted in faith alone in Christ. 
the glorious truths of sanctification is not faith alone in Christ, but a working faith in Christ and for Christ, fully synergistic. And if I just say one more word about it before we get to the issue of the pastor. Um, fully, fully, and I, know I used to go through this, this, this movement back and forth between my life where I'd, I want to let go and let God and go to this passive view of sanctification. And um, when the striving got so much against sin and I just want to, I'm going to let go and let God, then I'd let go and let God, and then I'd keep seeing where God keep telling me in the Bible to take hold and, uh, so, uh, and work out. And then I'd go work out, and I'd get tired, and I'd go back to letting go and letting God. And then I realized, and that's why I commend to you Jerry Bridges' work on the discipline of grace, where he makes very clear this isn't seasons of letting go and letting God and seasons of working hard until you need to go back and let go. And it's not, uh, and it's not 50% God and 50% you. It's a 100% God's work in you and 100% you're working out what God's working in you. We say, how can it be two 100%? Well, that's where we kick in this wonderful word called supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who enables you to rest and work in sanctification at the same time. So now having said that about what we're about and encouraging particularly the younger generation to, to embrace this historic and biblical doctrine of, of sanctification and its pursuit uh, based upon the finished work of Christ, uh, what about the pastor himself? Uh, what about the pastor and uh, his life and ministry? Well, I want to commend to you, I want to read with you 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to read verses 6 through 16. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, I cannot, obviously, in the time I've got, do an exposition of this, so I'm not going to try. I am going to do a distillation of this, and um, I want to do a distillation around this title this morning. Uh, this may be provocative, particularly for all of the appropriately encouraged John Piper fans here. Gentlemen, we are professionals. Now, I know some of you know there's a book out there. Gentlemen, we are not professionals. This is one of those wonderful times when I've spoken with John that I fully agree with the intent and almost all of the content of that book. I just don't agree with the title. And my reason is, is I'm enough of a historian of the word professional. The word professional comes out of the Reformation. It comes along with a word that we use today called vocation. Vosis, calling, our vocation. Professional became a descriptive word out of the Reformation where the Reformers let everyone know that full-time Christian work is not simply being in vocational ministry. That every Christian is a full-time Christian worker. Therefore, the concept was introduced that when you work, the people that you are uh, equipping and discipling in your ministry, you are equipping them and discipling them into every sphere of life to live in and for Christ. And as they do it, where they go and do, the way they do their work is a profession of their faith. That was the root of the word professional that we do what we do with excellence because we are doing our work unto the Lord. It is an act of worship and it is a 
profession of our faith. Now, if anybody ought to do their work that indicates and manifests what we believe, it's the minister. We are professional. We, the way we do what we do ought to make clear what we believe. And we are going to the very foundation of that. And what Paul does in, in, um, in this text is he gives us um, a kind of a distillation of, a, of what an overall body of divinity would be for a pastor. So this is what, he's, what he says to Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the, words of the, uh, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and set I'm sorry, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example or a pattern in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council, or the, this is where my Baptist brothers missed it in the ESV translation team, when the presbytery, but that's all right, I'll go ahead and read council, the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, now my Baptist brothers are happy, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I've got a recommendation for you, I'm going to give you a couple just best practices type thing. I was just sharing with my own congregation last Lord's Day when I became a believer. There were three men who I just went to to ask them questions about doctrine as a new Christian and best practices in life. And uh, one was an elder. And for those ruling elders here, I say what I said to mine from that sermon. There's not other than overseeing the church, its policies, its process, its stewardship of the gospel, and shepherding the flock. I can't think of anything more important for an elder than to take two or three or four young men and put them on your hip pocket and disciple them. And I'm very glad for Harold Jones, who did that for me uh, at Faith Presbyterian Church. And I'm very glad the third man, uh, the first man was my grandfather. And the second man was uh, Harold Jones, and the third man was um, access to my pastor at that time, Richard Tebebaugh, who pulls the trigger for discipleship from the pulpit, as you and I do, uh, in life and ministry. So, I, uh, um, uh, and then I said, and then I quickly said, you know, when I was a novice in ministry, I had to get some help. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to get help in understanding theology with clarity, even as I was going through seminary and beyond and after I was out of it. I wanted help in that area theologically, and I wanted help in best practices in ministry. What do you do? You know, for instance, my first marriage that I did, I had a death threat on me. Now, what do you do as a pastor when you got a death threat your first marriage? 
and uh, and so um, what are best practices in life and uh, in ministry. So I um, I got uh, seven men, and I found out a way to get them on hook and crook so that I could just call upon them at any time. Frank Barker, uh, Jim Baird, uh, Jim Boyce, uh, Al Martin, uh, Henry Crabbendam. Um, when I do a list like this, I know I'm going to leave uh, somebody out at this uh, at this point, but um, uh, I think I got uh, five of them there. Um, let's see, R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, and uh, <laughs> R.C. I'm sorry, R.C. I left you out, but uh, R.C. and um, and then uh, but these these were guys that I just. I would constantly go to oh, Bill Hay, and uh, those were the guys that who <laughs> sitting here. Bill, I don't want to forget you either. And so these were guys that very graciously. GA for me is I'd get their lunch. I, I kept waiting for them to buy mine, but uh, they didn't. And I would just ask them questions. I'd give them a call. I wanted to know those things. So I recommend to you to get those kind of people in your life. Uh, be, and to call upon them and uh, in terms of life and best practices. And one of the things that Paul is doing now is he is downloading for Timothy what are best practices in terms of an effective ministry. Where are you headed and what do you and, and where do you where do I want you to go? And so he puts this together in First Timothy in general. It comes down to this text in particular. So I recommend to you this is one of the best practices I would give to you. Regularly, as a pastor, regularly read First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Regularly read First Corinthians one through four. Regularly read First Thessalonians one and two. I believe that gives you a wonderful overview of an apostolic vision for an effective pastoral gospel ministry. Those texts of Scripture, just regularly read them. Let me, read, let me go back just for a moment on First and Second Timothy and Titus. I know we call those the pastoral epistles, and rightly so, but I think you can be even more precise. First Timothy and Titus are pastoral instructions to two pastors who are engaged in the ministry of church revitalization. Timothy has gone back to Ephesus to, to uh, revitalize the church at Ephesus, which did not heed Paul's warnings after he left them at the end of his three-year ministry, and now they're in trouble. Well, he doesn't cut them off and decide to plant another church. He sends his best man to revitalize them. And, the, and a handbook on revitalization from a pastoral perspective is there. And you'll notice that Titus is very similar to 1 Timothy. Have you ever noticed that in content? Well, that's because Titus had the same ministry. He was going to Crete to, quote, set in order the things that remain. It was a ministry of church revitalization. But then 2 Timothy is the Elijah putting his mantle on Elisha. Second Timothy is a focused pastoral book of direction. So I would recommend in terms of the development of your life and ministry, I'd recommend you to read those texts along with the 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2. I believe they, they provide the foundation um, for your ministry, a formation for it, and the multi, the multi motivations, the multiple motivations in life and in ministry. Now, Paul, in this text, is assuming, if I can put it, if I could call upon what Derek Thomas said at our luncheon, Paul is assuming you're already hyphenated as a minister. He, in other words, he's assuming you are Christ-centered. 
He is assuming you are gospel-driven. He is assuming you are Holy Spirit-empowered. He is assuming you are Bible-shaped. He is assuming that you're God-glorified. He is assuming you're a hyphenated minister. You've got all of those hyphenations in place as a foundation. Now he's giving you formation and motivation. And he has a primary, he has an essential motivation for the pastor here. An essential motivation, and it's in the end of what I just read. That in so doing, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. So, what I'm about to say, <laughs> and let me, I, I wrote it down, so let me make sure I read it, do it right. If you, do you desire to be a saving instrument in the hands of God for the salvation of sinners? and the redemption of God's elect? That's the question. Now, do you want a job that you're paid to read? Or do you want a job uh, that um, you get to set your own schedule, per se? Or are you in the gospel ministry business? And bottom line is I want to finish strong, save from sin. Saved by past grace. I've been saved from the persuasion of sin and God's calling. I've been saved from the power of sin and regeneration. I've been saved from the penalty of sin and justification. I've been saved from the position of sin and adoption. I am being saved from the practice of sin and sanctification. I will be saved from the presence of sin and glorification. And I want that for everybody I minister to. Now, if that's not your desire, if that's not your desire, then everything I've got to say is pretty useless. But if that's your desire, you've got that hyphenated foundation. You've got this not singular but crucial motivation in life and ministry, called to the ministry. I want... I not only want to be saved from my sins, not only past grace, but present grace and future grace, I want my hearers to be saved from sin. If that's not your motivation, then everything I've got to say is, uh, is uh, pretty much useless. But if that is your motivation, if that is your motivation, God, I want you to give me a sin-killing, sinner-saving ministry. I want you to give me a sin-killing, Christ-exalting ministry. My church does not exist to give me a job. I'm here to do a job. And my job is to minister the gospel of grace that turns sin-lovers into sin-killers, Christ-rejectors into Christ-exalters. That's what my job and calling is then if that's your desire, if that's your heart, with all of the intimidating dynamics related to just what I said, where do I get started? Paul lays out an apostolic roadmap for Timothy. Here's where you go. You got your foundation? I'm putting down the channel markers for you. Here's the channel markers that I want to guide you to this end, to having an effective gospel ministry. 
that kills sin, saves sinners, exalts Christ, and you get lost in the process. That is not lost in your sin, but lost to the applause of people. That here is here are the channels that I'm going to give you. So what he gives, interestingly, with all that I've said, he then gives 13 in that text right here. Now, if you go to all those other texts I gave you, we're multiplying. But right now, in this text where he gives a distillation of the life and ministry of an effective gospel minister, he gives 13 commandments. Actually, 21 commandments. Because some of them have multiple objectives. Now, if you don't mind, uh, this is where I told you this is not exposition because, I mean, this is a year's worth of sermons. Each one of these commands could be a sermon for you and me as we look, look through it and examine it. But I'm, I'm just going to give them to you. you don't, don't try to write them down. Here's what he says. He says, um, he's at, he, gives, he starts giving these directives. Have nothing, uh, have nothing to do with myths and, and, uh, and all of those uh, things that you should have nothing to do with. There's a command. Command number two, train yourself. Number three, prioritize your training. Give yourself to physical discipline that is some profit. Not of no profit, but of some profit. But godliness is of great profit. So you, have, you train yourself in physically. You train yourself spiritually. You prioritize your training. He says, toil. He says, strive. He says, command. He commands us to command. He says, teach. He says to us that um, let no one despise you. He gives another directive. He says, set an example. And then he gives multiple commands under this one. Set an example of speech. Gentlemen, no, we ask God, fill our heart so that no unwholesome word comes out of our mouth. Sloppy speech does not, does not prove that you believe in grace. He says, set a pattern, an example of speech. Set a pattern, an example of conduct, of love, of faith, of purity. That we are to strive for those things. Now do you get the idea why? Seventeen qualifications for an elder, fifteen of them deal with character. That he, we are to set a pattern before the congregation. Devote yourselves, he says. Devote yourself to, and then he gives multiple objectives. Devote yourself to the reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to exhortation. Devote yourself to teaching. That's why the tithe is given to you and me. The tithe got Achan killed. He took God's tithe at Jericho, got him killed. We're living off the tithe. Now, why don't we get killed? Because God says what you do is important. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That God gives us support, not because we're important, but because of what we do is important. It is through the foolishness of the message preached that men and women are being saved so that we are even supported so that we can give ourselves to this and devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture and to, um, uh, and to exhortation and to teaching. 
He says, uh, do not neglect. There's another command. Do not neglect the gift that's within you. He, another command, practice these things. Again, the Baptists jump up and down on this one. Immerse yourself. Well, I think that's a careful choice of words. Immerse yourself. Why? Guys, we're on this side of eternity. We're broken vessels. I got leaks all in my life. So how do you fill up a broken vessel? You immerse it. That's how you fill it up. I mean, you start pouring it into me, with all due respect to I love pouring baptism, believe it's biblical, debate it all the time. But, um, but you, keep pouring, you keep pouring in, and it's going to keep leaking out. But I tell you what, you take a leaky vessel and you just, you just dip it in the water and immerse it in the water, it fills up and stays filled up. So we, he tells us to immerse ourselves. There's a clear command that we are to immerse. Then he, then he gives the summation that I just want to draw a few thoughts around. He, he brings it to the last uh, three with a promise. He's get, the last three commands are this. Keep watch. One, over yourself. Next command. Keep watch over the definite articles in the text. The teaching. Next command. Persist in this. Persist in this. And then the promise, which becomes our motivation. In so doing, you will ensure salvation, not only for yourself. Now, he's not talking about adding back to justification and adoption. He's speaking of saving yourself from the practice of sins. That's what he's speaking of. He's not talking about merits going back to justification and adoption. He's talking about the means of killing sin in your own life. The means of, of God delivering you from addictions and practices and thoughtlessness. That's what he's speaking of. And your hearers. That's the promise that he gives to it. So what does he say? He says, take heed to yourself. That you are to take, the word, the phrase take heed means to give a close scrutiny, to give attention to, to be intentional. He's calling us to give focus to ourselves in the relationship of the gospel dynamic that's at work within our life. Then he says, take heed to the teaching. Not just any teaching, not just teaching, but the teaching. And then he commands to persist in these things. Now, so take heed. Give close scrutiny to yourself. Give close scrutiny to the teaching. And he's already said, don't neglect the gift within you. So let me give you, and it's in the book that, uh, that um, uh, Rick graciously uh, affirmed as some usefulness to. And that's this. I believe that there are three crucial aspects to our ministry. Character. Content and competency. Those are the three. I've already mentioned to you, it's amazing when the Bible emphasizes qualifications for elders, it only mentions two competencies, teaching and management. Everything else is character in your personal life, in your family life, in the community and in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That character is of absolute it's absolutely crucial and then content men we need to know our stuff 
we need to be constant learners. My, one of my mentors is Frank Barker that I had both the intimidating dynamic of following as well as the great privilege to be around. Let me tell you something about Frank. Every time you meet him, he's doing one of three things. Sleeping. <laughs> I, mean, I'm I remember the first time I met Frank, and I tell him, he may go to sleep. He did. First time I talked, they were sending me to plant the church in Charlotte, and he was interviewing me, and we were talking, and he went to sleep while I was, you know, now, I didn't get offended because he didn't go to sleep while I was talking. He went to sleep while he was talking. <laughs> now, I'll tell you one of the reasons that's true. You ought to see the hours he spends up praying and studying. That, that's why it's true. Uh, secondly, uh, every time you meet him, I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I've walked up on him and he's praying. Uh, there's a reason, you can go read it, the green chair story is crucial to Briarwood and what prayer means. And then the third thing, uh, he'll always ask me, Harry, how's it going? Yeah, going pretty good, Frank. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, love your ministry, brother. What you reading? Well, help me. He's 84 years old. What are you reading that'll help me? Preachers do not know it all. They want to know it all. They want to know their stuff. Give attention to the teaching. Um, the, uh, uh, some people, you know, I graduated from Westminster Seminary for my MDiv, but I got my D-men through RTS. I was covering all my bases that I could possibly, and I went to Covenant College, so I was getting as many things covered as I could. Uh, but one of the reasons I chose RTS at that time, uh, uh, Westminster's on board with this also, but at that time, uh, it was a D-Men program that I could go back and take my classes free after I'd finished and audit them anytime I wanted to because I knew I needed to keep learning. That has to happen in your life. You have to be a learner. Character, that's the gospel work in your heart and soul and life and relationships. And then content. And then competencies. And, um, and that we know how to deliver but we stir up the gift, and we're constantly working on the gifts of preaching and teaching and discipling and leading and serving, all of those competencies that are required in the ministry with the focus upon preaching and teaching as he does. Give attention to your exhortation and teaching. And that's why I gave you the idea of getting some models and mentors in your life because you learn by imitation. And you need mentors in your life. Those are just some practical suggestions. But those three things, now, I'm going to come back to this, though. I think the most important is character, not only because of the biblical weight of the qualifications, but because I've seen it borne out in life. Uh, pastors, I've been around long enough. There's a lot of men that know theology way beyond my, my simple abilities. And there are a lot of men that have unbelievable public gifts from preaching to leadership. But everywhere they go, churches get diseased or split. And it's not because they don't know theology. And it's not because they can't exercise leadership or even public communication. It's a character issue. It's why you're doing what you're doing. It's how you're doing what you're doing. I think it's absolutely crucial. One of my favorite examples of this 
was when that airplane pilot landed that airplane in the river, Hudson River. I have one prejudice in my life that I know of, and do not send me any emails because I am not going to repent of it. I'm going to keep it to the, in fact, I will exercise this prejudice tomorrow. I will get on a Southwest airline, uh, that's the airline I'm going on tomorrow, and when I get in, when I walk through, I will greet the stewardess or attendant or whatever they're called now, then I will look to my left, and I'll look in the cockpit, and when I look to my left, I have a prejudice. I want to see no hair or gray hair on that pilot. I do not want to ask, do you have a driver's license? I am, do not want my going up his first rodeo. That is not, I'm going 40,000 feet with you, buddy, and I want to make sure it's, you're not doing this because you stayed in the Holiday Inn last night. This, you know your stuff. When that guy landed that plane, there's two things that struck me as I watched the video. I mean, y'all know how it happened. He said, engine, it was like a minute and 48 seconds is what he had. Both engines are out. They said, runway, he said, meet us at the river. He knew exactly what had to be done. He put, somehow, in those few moments, he put that plane down in the river between two ferries that could get out and get those people that were on the wing. It did not surprise me two things. One, Here's a man that knew his stuff. He knew his stuff. Secondly, and, and when he walked out, it didn't surprise me, he had little hair, and what he did have was gray. That did not surprise me. The next thing, I noticed he was the last one out of the plane. Found out he had walked through the whole plane twice to make sure everybody else was out before he went out. That was character. That's what he is calling us to here. Set an example. A gospel-developed character intentionally developed with utter reliance. I don't know why we're having such a hard time with this matter of sanctification. Because our church vows have already summed it up so simply. In humble reliance upon divine grace, I will endeavor. It summed it up very simply. And that's the way we do our ministry is that we, in reliance upon God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will endeavor to take heed to ourselves, to take heed to the teaching. And then, he says, persist in it. This isn't a one-and-off deal. This is a persistence the rest of our life. 349 biographical sketches, I'm sorry, 347 biographical sketches in Scripture. Only 69 finished strong. Only 69 finished strong. Some finished forgiven. David finished forgiven. He didn't finish strong. You want to see what happened to Israel? He was restored, reconciled, forgiven. But look what happened to Israel. There are consequences to our life. As believers, we can sow, and as ministers, we also reap what we sow. And we can be forgiven, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. So I want to give heed to myself. 
I want to give heed to the teaching, and I want to persist in these things. I want to persist in it with, and to persist, I give you three words on this. Persist with intention, persist with interdependence. These things go together. Give attention to yourself and to, your, and to your, the teaching. They are interdependent with each other. Thirdly, they're inseparable from each other. As you give attention to your teaching, it will affect you. As you give attention to yourself, it will affect your teaching. They are inseparable, they are interdependent, and they are to be intentionally engaged with utter reliance upon God's grace and God's mercy and God's power and strength. And brothers, uh, again, here is what I've noted. Just, I'm just going to give you. In life, men in ministry, and even leaders in general that I have seen, they have uncommon standards in life. They don't just get by. They gladly welcome evaluation teams, but they don't need them. They're already evaluating themselves. The only reason they want an evaluation team is you, with eyes outside of me, you may see some things I don't see and I want to get it. But they've already evaluated them. They're always raising the bar on themselves because of their love for Christ. They're always, they're adopting uncommon standards out of devotion to Christ throughout their life. And their ministry. That's what they're committing themselves to. So let me give you five assumptions from this. And then I'll just conclude with some, um, uh, with some um, encouragements to you. Uh, here's, let me give you these five assumptions out of what uh, Paul has said to Timothy. For a, a sin-killing, sinner-saving, Christ-exalting ministry of the gospel. Number one is this. God has ordained your ministry to save his people from their sins. Do you realize that? God has ordained your ministry as His primary instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to save His people from their sins. It is through the foolishness of the message preached that we are being saved. Paul said, I came to preach, not baptize. Paul knows baptism belongs in the Great Commission. He's not belittling it. He just knows baptism is downstream from preaching. And therefore, you have to give yourself to preaching. Baptism is absolutely... And please, let me encourage you. No one loves the sacraments more than me. But you don't build a church on sacraments. You build a church on prayer and the Word. Give yourself to the ministry of prayer and the Word. Sacraments become meaningless. When you preach like Peter, then you can baptize like Peter. And you can do the Lord's Supper like Paul when you preach like Paul. That's what defines those things. The sacraments are meaningful by faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. God has put you in a crucial place and has ordained your ministry to save His people from their sins. Secondly, God saves through means of grace. That's what he's been laying out for us. God saves through... And let me quickly say, I am not saying that means of grace are merits of grace. I don't get merits when I have studied the Scriptures. But it is a means where the merited grace of Christ comes into my life. And that I need to give myself to the means of grace and to make myself an instrument or a means of grace 
in the lives of others. God supernaturally accomplishes this. Number three, God uses your efforts in His work in you and then through you. Let me say it again. God uses your efforts. I just gave you 21 commands. Those are not superfluous. Those are not, you know, I don't think, I think I'm going to dismiss those and I'm going to sit in a corner and contemplate either my navel or something else and something's going to happen to my life and ministry. Or if I may be even more pointed, Paul does not say, Paul has assumed that you are built upon the doctrine of regeneration. You've been set free to follow him. He is assuming you have been justified in and for Christ and by Christ. He is assuming you're a son of God and you know you're a son of God and you embrace your slaveship to God as well. He is assuming that. Now, with that assumption in place, He now commands us into life and ministry and He calls us to these efforts that this God uses to sanctify us that we might be instruments in the lives of others. And He calls us to those efforts in life. God uses your efforts in His work in you and His work through you to save others. Number four, God has, in regeneration, given you the power to say no to sin and yes to Christ. The washing of regeneration, Paul says, has given you the power to say no to sin and yes to Christ. There is a viral video out there that I love for two reasons. It's Bob Newhart video. Where you come in and for $5 he will counsel you for five minutes. And he lit. Anybody seen that? Okay, go, go Google. Here I don't Google. Go find a friend who will Google for you. And watch this one. This one and the nail in the forehead are my two favorite videos out there. I, I just like to watch them every once in a while. But he, you know, he listens to her and, and he says to her, she, he, when he finishes, he says, okay, I'll, I'll help you. And she said, well, he says, stop it. Now, I know as soon as I say that, I can see all the people descending upon me. That is so simplistic, and you don't understand all of the dynamics of why men are sitting in front of the screen for pornography, why there's the tendency to cheat on the expense account, why there is... No, I did not say don't pastorally help people stop it, but tell them they can stop it. If they can't, then please dismiss the entire chapter on regeneration from the confession of faith. Now, do we help them stop it? Do we, when they falter, point them back first to the foundation of their salvation, that you didn't lose your salvation because you faltered? And that Jesus died? Yes, we do. Then we get right back to, now let's go kill that sin. What is sin? Here was sin. We have all sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Before I came to Christ, I was a glory-killing sinner. I was killing God's glory 
with my sin to exalt my glory. When I become a Christian, I am now on a journey to kill my sin and glorify God. That's the journey I am on. It will be uneven. It will falter. But it is progressive. I can grow 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold in my life. And that I cannot expect that to be seen in the lives of my people if it is not happening in my life. That's what I am called to do. So, I, um, and so what, um, what the Apostle Paul has outlined is not only that God uses your efforts in His work, but that God has given you the power and God has given you the motivation to do this. And He has given you multiple motivations to accomplish this. And then number five, God's Word is sufficient to change and grow you and your ministry. That's why you give yourself, give yourself to the teaching. God's Word is sufficient. Absolutely sufficient. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's okay. You can't fire me. Uh, you may leave, but you can't fire me. Guys, I think we're entirely too... F I, and please, I am not ignorant of the influences of environments upon generations. I understand that. But I would encourage you, as you begin to exegete your congregation, exegete them from the Bible, not psychological analysis, even generational analysis. I know, I know men of my age who are antinomians. You don't have to be under 30. I know... I've discipled some young men that are on the verge of outright, unbelievable, heretical legalism. I'm asking you to believe the Bible in its transgenerational and transcultural truth. Then you can deal down, and then you can drill down into contextualization. But I'm asking you to do that. And you can't do what you don't know. We've got to... Here's what I love. Newton was asked... Why do you quote John Bunyan so much? You know, what, you know what Newton said? He said, no, I'm sorry, not Newton. <laughs> do you know it was Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon, as you know, probably, if you've ever read Spurgeon, is always quoting John Bunyan. And when Spurgeon was asked, why do you quote Bunyan? He said, because I believe if you cut him open, he'll bleed the Bible. That he is utterly immersed in it. He is marinated with it so that we give ourselves to those things. Well, those are the assumptions and now just some final observations and I'll, and I'll be through on time. And I actually have elders here who are amazed at this uh, in this room. Here's, just, here's some thoughts for you. Here's the first thing. A profitable ministry, a profitable and growing ministry is a grace-discipled ministry a grace-disciplined ministry. The grace of God has trained us. Now here the Scripture has told us this wonderful truth. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, disciplining us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. A profitable ministry, a growing ministry, is a grace 
discipled ministry. Now, I will tell you something here. I will be, again, very careful. I want to be very careful. When I say a growing ministry, I am not necessarily speaking of statistics. And I'm not trying to get any of this off the hook because I think a normally spiritually vital ministry will have statistical results in almost all cases. But I believe the metrics that God applies is your faithfulness to love His Word, love the lost, and love the people, and love what He's called you to do, and you do it well for Him. That ministry is a growing ministry as it equips people to deal with the death of a spouse, as it equips people to raise children in this unbelievably hostile environment uh, to, uh, uh, to Christian parenting that you are actually equipping them to do that. That is a faithful, growing ministry, equipping people to live in and for Christ. Let me give you a second comment, and that's this. I believe this with all my heart. Godliness, in fact, this is a great comfort to me, godliness is more important than giftedness. I believe that godliness is more important. I did not say giftedness is not important. Work on your gifts and your competencies. But I hesitate. I do a lot of leadership training. I hesitate to train people in leadership skills. Do you know why? Because they work. I know leadership works. So, say, well, Harry, what if it's bad leaders? That works. Blind lead the blind. Guess what happens? They both fall in the pit. It works. My problem, I know leadership skills work, and I hate to think that I've put leadership skills into someone's hands who will use it to manipulate instead of motivate. I know they're going to work. That's why I'm not saying giftedness is not important, but I am saying godliness is more important because that will determine what you do with your gifts. Thirdly, we don't celebrate sin and failures. We don't celebrate them. We confess them and then go kill them. We do not celebrate sin and failure. Now, I know that's a great easy road to getting the sympathy of people and the ear of people. But we don't confess, we don't celebrate sin and failure. I will never say to someone, after they have faltered in sin, your ministry is going to be more effective because of this. I will tell them God can take this and make you more effective. But it wasn't your sin that made you more effective. That's not what it is. We do not celebrate sin and failures. We confess them. We're comforted in the Lord. We are forgiven. Now we go kill them. We go kill the sin. We go destroy that sin. We flee temptation. We do all of those things that God has called us to do. And we confess sin and strive for victories of grace. So that somebody like Paul might say about us, And such were some of you. There are victories before glorification. There are victories. Now, I don't know how God's going to give them to you sometime, but He will give you victories. And when I first became a believer, there were two things that I would... Uh, this is all I say about my life apart from Christ. I was immoral, ungodly, blasphemous, profane, and violent. Those five things. And I don't want to talk about the incidents. But I will tell you this. That was amazing. There are sins that were embedded in me when I was converted. I am still fighting today. 
There were some, after I was converted, they were gone. Next day, next day, I mean, uh, blasphemous, and sp- I, you, you, you would not have let your wife or your daughter near me. Not even near me. Not, you wouldn't have let them near me for me to get two sentences out of my mouth. You wouldn't have done it. When I got converted, that's gone. I mean, I am constantly amazed. That mouth now teaches the Bible. I am constantly amazed at that. Sometimes God will give you victories. He'll microwave them. Majority of them are going to be crock-potted. It's going to just keep dealing with it and keep dealing with it until we get it out by the roots, by God's grace and with His glory. Number four, the pursuit of holiness in life and ministry is multidimensional. That's at nine, right? Okay. The pursuit of holiness in life and ministry is multidimensional. There are multiple dimensions. Love to Christ is crucial, <laughs> foundational. Gratitude is glorious. But those are not the only two. Listen, I've got all kinds. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat one day. I'm going to give account of my words and my thoughts. Not for my salvation, but for my stewardship. I have to give account for my ministry. I want to be say I am innocent of the blood of all men because I've tried to give myself to declare the whole counsel of God. Proportionately, understanding what's primary, what's secondary, what's tertiary. But, I, but Jesus didn't say, go and make disciples and teach them the fundamentals of the faith. He, we know where to start, but he said this, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So, I, God, please allow me to engage in this ministry with the multidimensional diet. I want my people, I want my people when they stand before God to give all the glory to God and say, and God, thank you for this imperfect instrument. He overall was an asset in my life. That I want to be an asset. I want to be a profitable instrument in God's hands in the life of God's people. There, I loved what Derek Thomas said yesterday. I'm going to go ask him for the list. He says there's 50 motivations that he's identified in the life of a minister and in the life of sanctification. Well, let me, um, number five, holiness in life and ministry doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. It happens through the means of grace. God has designed the means. We are grateful for, uh, for the monergistic work of regeneration, justification, adoption, calling, and glorification. And we embrace the synergistic work, no matter what the pace, microwave or crockpot, we embrace the synergistic work of sanctification. Number seven, when you keep watch over yourself and you keep watch over your ministry, um, uh, there are no shortcuts. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, here's what I'm going to try to say about it. Here's what I'm doing. If I'm trying to try, I've got elders sitting here who are supposed to shepherd the flock. What does Paul say to the flock? What does Paul say to the elders? He says this, keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Now, what does he say to teaching elders? Keep watch over yourself and the teaching. You see the consistency? What do they both have in common? You can't get to your responsibility unless you deal with your heart and your life. You don't go straight to your responsibility. You go straight to your heart and your life in your relationship with the Lord. That you will be, uh, that you will be, gr- there's no shortcuts to this. 
Uh, number eight, plan your life. Plan your life with the preeminence and prominence of Christ. And then live your plan by, pow by the power and persistence, by the power of Christ and persistence for Christ. Plan your life with the preeminence and prominence of Christ. Then live your plan by the power of Christ and persistence for Christ. Just stay at it. Finish strong. I have in, I have in, uh, the, I was a, a friend of mine has trees, and in the fall, he has trees that shed leaves. He had, in the fall, he has trees that shed leaves, and in the spring, he has trees that shed leaves. Now, there's two names for those trees. I don't know them. Would love to have them if you've got it. Not now. Just pass me the, those are two different types of trees. One tree loses its leaves in the fall. You know why? The sap's been cut off. Nothing to feed them. So they fall off in the fall. The ones that lose their trees in the spring, that lose their leaves in the spring, that's because the sap's rising and it pushes off with new buds what's still hanging on. That's my life. That's my life of sanctification. God, I want to cut off everything that feeds sin that we can shed it. God, I want you to fill me up with Jesus so much. It pushes this sin out. And that gets very practical prayers. Lord, please, please give me a hatred of the sin of immorality. Please give me a hatred for it. Don't let me play with it. Don't let me make funny games with it. Give me the grace to hate it. In fact, I've asked God this. Give me, I hate nothing more than this. Give me nausea. But when I get sick with the stomach virus, I'll fight that to the end. I mean, I'll pour Pepto-Bismol down me. I'll do everything I can not to regurgitate. I know that's not a smart thing to do, but that's me. I can't stand it. So when, for me to pray for nausea, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Father, help me just get nauseated with it. Don't help me just say, you know, I'm forgiven of it, so it's okay for me to just think about this a little bit. No, help me hate it. This is what my Jesus died for. And I want to hate it. Give me a nausea for it. And then, Father, would you fill me up with a love for my wife that I don't have any room for anything else. So this stuff gets pushed out of my life. Those two dynamics that work within the life of a believer and a minister. And so I would just, the final thing I would say is this, is that the, uh, the key, I believe the key that Paul is saying is this, if you don't keep watch over yourself, you can't keep watch over the flock or your ministry. You've got to keep watch over yourself. So get some models. Get some mentors. Brothers, may I encourage you, do not buy into the efficiency model for life. Buy into the effective model for life. Efficiency is how many things can I get done today. Effectiveness is getting the right things done today. Give attention. Prioritize in your life. Build prayer. Saturate your life with prayer. And I want to, my final word is this to you. Eventually, eventually, everybody, including Christians and ministers, you will be and do, you will be and do what you watch, 
what you listen to, and what you read. Eventually, you will be and do what you watch, what you listen to, and what you read. So give attention to yourself. Give attention to the teaching. And stay the course. Finish strong. We're marathon runners, not sprinters. Marathon runner, every mile you want to be faster than the previous mile. And your best mile will be your last mile. And when you get there, when you get there, you got nothing left. You don't go into the ministry to be fulfilled. I'm not saying it's not fulfilling. I'm just telling you, you don't go into the ministry to be fulfilled. Paul says to Timothy, fulfill the ministry. You go into the ministry to fulfill the ministry. That's why Paul says, when he finished the course, I'm poured out as a drink offering. Not a burn offering. Burn offering, you got ashes left. Drink offering, nothing's left. You meet Jesus having poured it all out for him because of him who will forgive you in all your falterings and will give you victories on the way. Give attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persist that God gives you an effective ministry. We desperately need you in the church of Jesus Christ today. God has called you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.